Hi, this is Alan Chartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with psychiatrist and author Bick Wank. Dr. Wank's new book is Mind Easing, The Three-Layered Healing Plan for Anxiety and Depression. You can find out more at https colon slash slash bickwank, W-A-N-C-K-M-D dot com. One of the founders of the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry, Dr. Bick Wank, is board certified in psychiatry and an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Albany Medical College in Albany, New York. In 1986, he founded Bick Wank, MD, and Associates, a private mental health group practice. His successful therapy treatment program is based on the philosophy that people have inherently self-healing and growth processes and that they can change negative, distorted perceptions with ones that are positive and healthy. Before starting his own practice, Bick ran the addiction treatment programs in a private psychiatric hospital in New Jersey, treating people of many and varied backgrounds, including movie stars, rock stars, and politicians. But it may be his own story that has provided him with the most powerful perspective. Growing up in Appalachia, he learned firsthand the values of perseverance, persistence, and determination. By necessity, he would need to seek out healing for himself. His mission became helping others to do the same. He knows what it's like to suffer and what it's like to get well and flourish. We'll talk with Dr. Bick Wank about all of this and much more. But first, welcome, Dr. Wank. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So let's start in the beginning. The book speaks for itself, and we'll talk a lot about that. But let's talk to begin with about you. It's always been my theory that many doctors, and you sort of indicate this in your book, come to this specialties and subspecialties based on what their own particular interests are. Is that true in your case? certainly is. And you mentioned in the book that there was addiction in your family. That's correct. What was that, Vic? Primarily alcohol problems, also opiates. So I was exposed to the dysfunction of addiction very early on in life and throughout childhood and adolescence. You're a kid, though. How old are you? I am now on the verge of 68. You don't look it. Thank you. And that's because you swim every day. I happen to know that about you. Well, you you name it. Swim, exercise, as Uh you'll discover, is best drug going. As I have discovered. (laughs) That's true. Can it cure a broken back? Probably not. But it certainly is helpful. It will help it heal. Yeah. So the book is a very interesting one in that what it does is it becomes a sort of repository for... A lot of thinking that many of us, from the way we eat to the way we exercise to the way we sleep, all of it is in the book. Correct. So if somebody wants to see a sort of grouping and meditation and all of that, it's all in this one place. Is there anything you think people shouldn't be doing? One of the ways the mind naturally heals itself is by seeking comfort. And we all do this when we're scared, we're sad, we're feeling empty, lonely. We seek sources of comfort. You ask, what should we not be doing? I would say we should not be seeking comfort in unhealthy ways. Too much of the wrong thing or too much of the right thing can cause problems of its own, addiction and otherwise. So give us some examples of without naming names, of course, things that people have done that are counterproductive. Certainly drinking more than would be a good idea, eating more than would be helpful, sometimes even exercising to excess. So moderation in finding ways of finding comfort is what I would suggest. So the issue there is how does one know I mean, I walk four miles a day, not that this is supposed to be a psychiatric session for me, but I walk four miles a day, and on a day when I don't, when I can't, I just can't, the day's too filled up, I find that I really miss it. Does that mean I'm addicted to it? That means that you have a very healthy relationship with it, and that you enjoy it, and it does something good for you. Otherwise, the wisdom of your inner self would not be bringing you back to it over and over again. Well, let's go there. Let's talk about the wisdom of the inner self. What is that? Then we're entering the realm of, for me, healing. And I see healing as the higher power of medicine, that as we need to spend more time attending to the basic process of of healing. 
inner wisdom is a sign of healing. Healing is what gets us well. And my point, the message that I want to bring to the world and have wanted to bring to the world uh, most of my life is let's start with healing. Healing is uh, an inherent uh, power that follows a describable pattern or describable patterns. Uh, And if there are ways that we can assist healing, then we're likely to help healing get us to a point where we need to be more safely and more effectively. Healing is relentless. Healing never gives up on on you. Healing never gives up on me. Healing never gives up on us. From the moment of conception until the moment of your death, healing is part of your experience. You don't even have to think about it. It happens naturally. I say, with such an incredible, powerful power of healing, let's work with that. Let's do what we can to promote that and assist that. That's where I start with how healing happens naturally rather than starting with symptoms and imposing treatments. I say, let's start with healing, find ways to assist the process of healing, and the symptoms will reduce if we're doing the right thing to help healing find its way. So I I hate to be naive about this, but but we do see people committing suicide in some cases, in increasing numbers. Does that mean they've rejected healing? No. I'm so glad you brought up suicide. I was hoping you would, and here we are at the very beginning, which is uh, one place I like to start early on with anybody. Suicide is driven by a delusion. It's I call it the delusion of permanent misery, we humans seem to believe that when we're in a state of misery, it's going to last forever. It's a, it's a shame, really, that we don't have the same delusion about joy. When we're in a state of joy, we tend to think, hey, this is great. But we don't think, hey, this is great. This is going to, live, this is going to last forever. The rest of my life, I'll be in a state of joy. But when people are feeling miserable and suffering horribly, often, ordinarily, quite often, Uh, They'll believe that this is a permanent state. It's never going to end. So if it's permanent, why should I bother being alive? It's not worth it. And I say this delusion of permanent misery uh, must be discussed, must be uh, spoken about, and alternatives must be found. I tell people, even though you believe that things will never get better, they will. They will either get better or you will adapt to how lousy things are and find a way to make better of it. So you say that we can become depressed for a number of reasons. The book goes on to list all of those reasons. Perhaps you could go through some of them with us now. I would love to, but I would I would first, if you would allow me... It's your hour, my sh- friend. Thank you. Share with your listeners the Suicide Prevention Hotline. Suicide Prevention Hotline in the Capital Region is 518-689-4673. Again, that's 518-689-4673. There's also a national hotline. 1-800-SUICIDE. People who feel suicidal and have a permanent, uh, have a delusion of permanent misery, I often give them a card. Uh, Write on the card, here are some numbers you can call. Uh, And please tell me the people you could call yourself to turn to if you're feeling suicidal. If you're feeling like there's no hope for you at all and your only choice is to kill yourself, Please don't, and please call someone. And if you can't call someone, just dial 911. Get a ride to the emergency room. All right. With that said, let's go on to how people do get depressed. What, what are the reasons? Uh, you list them all in the book. What are they? Yes, I like to start with 
why it is that someone's depressed or why it is that someone's anxious rather than what their symptoms are. During medical school, during residency, I was taught to uh, elicit symptoms. And from a list of symptoms, if there are enough of the right kind of symptoms, or I should say the wrong kind of symptoms, that will constitute a diagnosis. And from that diagnosis, since I'm taught to prescribe medicine, ordinarily there's a medicine that could be prescribed for that diagnosis. I reject that. I'm much more interested in what are the causes of someone's anxiety or depression. So I list three causes. There are three essential causes of anxiety and depression, and they are current stressors, past adversity, and genetics. And there are two things, two conditions, that mimic those three essential causes, and they are medical conditions such as, for example, hypothyroidism, can result in uh, slow movement, fatigue, and depression. So medical conditions must be ruled out and treated before concluding that there is a primary anxiety or depression. The second condition or cluster of conditions that mimic uh, the three essential causes of anxiety and depression are addictions. Alcohol, heroin, Cocaine, gambling, sex, internet, these are all conditions when situations, when taken to the extreme, can also give rise to anxiety and depression. If someone seems to have an addiction to a chemical or a behavior, I say abstain for two weeks. Give me at least two weeks, and then let's take another look. If someone's still feeling significant degree of anxiety or depression, then could be, in addition to the addiction, there may also be a primary anxiety or, or depression. So when you say abstain, you mean abstain from whatever it is that you're addicted to? Correct. Stop drinking alcohol if it's too much alcohol. Stop cocaine, heroin. If it's sex, stop sex entirely for a couple of weeks and see what happens. If it's gambling, don't gamble. If someone seems to be experiencing panic, uh, pressure, uh, or depression because of internet, social media excess, abstain from that for two weeks, and then let's take a look. Well, you know, it reminds me a little bit, I'm sure you're familiar with it, with the 2,000-year-old man, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner, and Dr. Hal Danish, who says to the addicted person who sits there and tears paper all day, and he said, did you cure him? Yes. He said, I cured him. And he said, well, how do you cure him? He said, I told him not to tear paper. Well, you're telling people who are addicted, abstain. Sometimes that's not so easy. That's right. Sometimes it can be dangerous to immediately abstain. If someone's drinking too much alcohol or a large amount of alcohol, to suddenly stop drinking can result in a seizure. So it's important to have a medical evaluation along the way, particularly when it's uh, due to when the addiction is alcoholism. So you tell them to. You've had a lot of patients. Do they do it? Do they go for they an say, evaluation? Do, no. Do they say when you've said to them, you're the evaluator, uh -huh. when, when they say to them, you say to them, cut it out for two weeks, can they always do that? Not always, uh -huh. but often. Often. Mm -hmm. And I can be quite insistent in my suggestions to people can you? that if you don't do this, we don't know what's wrong. Right. Let's get back to the three essential causes, and the only way that we can know if those three essential causes are the cause of your anxiety and depression is if you have a medical evaluation, treat medical conditions that could mimic it, and if you have an addictive process, that's going to have to stop. In the case of alcohol, you brought this up. What about how hard it is for people to stop? Alcohol, heroin, uh, cocaine— Somebody immediately stops using something. Uh, it's it's going to take a while uh, for the symptoms of withdrawal uh, to to diminish enough to know that their suffering is not due to withdrawal. Also, we're talking to Dr. Bick Wink. He's a psychiatrist, and he's written a very interesting book, "Mind Easing: The Three Layered Healing Plan for Anxiety and Depression." What are the three layers? 
The three layers are layer one, enhancement of healing, generally with wellness. Layer two, guidance of healing with various types of therapy. Layer three, restoration of healing with medicine, if needed. So could you go into each of those for us? Absolutely. Back to my original position, which is healing is the process that we need to assist. I say my mission in life is to relieve suffering. My method is by assisting healing. So these are ways to assist the healing process. First of all, enhancement of healing is a way to increase the power of healing, the power of the life force. I talk about the ABCs of healing enhancement, attitude adjustment, behavioral change, and compassionate love. Those three elements in particular can strengthen the process, the power of the process of healing. Attitude adjustment, I have three attitudes that I recommend people take a look at, one of which is gratitude. I say gratitude is most helpful when you feel you have the least. So what is it? What is gratitude? Gratitude, yes. gratitude is having thanks for what it is that you have in life that you can identify. Sometimes it's simply being alive, having the capacity to find food, shelter, uh, support. Sometimes that's all that someone has is that capacity to be able to find those things, even if they don't have shelter, even if they don't have food. Uh, so I start there with very basic level of gratitude. I also suggest a daily gratitude ritual. I have one myself. Every day, it only takes a couple of minutes. I say, thank you, God, for this moment. Thank you, God, for this place. Thank you, God, for the water. Thank you, God, for the air. Thank you, God, for the land. Thank you, God, for the light. Thank you, God, for this life. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. With a breath each time for each phrase, it's one way to become centered and reminded of gratitude. So for all those people who, and I'm not trying to be a wise guy here, but for all those people who don't believe in God, could you just say thank you for the air? Thank you for the... Absolutely. I have had clergy people come to me of various denominations, sometimes telling me they believe they're atheists. And sure. now here's someone delivering a message of religion every week in some form. And I say, of course you're an atheist. You're a theologist. You study theology, you're going to question everything. But are you spiritual? And they ask, well, what is that? I say, well, do you believe that there may be a greater force of some kind that brings life to us all, that heals us, uh, that causes flowers to bloom, seasons to change? Often they'll say yes. I say, well, then you are a religious person? and you are a spiritual person. You can have both and still be atheist in the case of a clergy person. If someone rejects religion, rejects the notion of God, I say, if there's some sort of power that you believe exists in the world that would be helpful to you in some way, reflect on that. For me, as a person who has devoted himself to helping to relieve suffering. For me, the greatest higher power in the work that I do is healing. So enhancing healing through wellness, attitude, behavior change. Behavior change is something people don't want to hear about. I say, if you're going to get well, it's going to require some self-discipline. You're going to have to put some effort into this. So I write a prescription. I often write it on a prescription pad. It's, in fact, my favorite prescription, and it's a prescription for meds, M-E-D-S. That stands for mindfulness, exercise, diet, and stress management. So I say give me a few minutes each day of meditative reflection. 
or simply stop and breathe quietly. It doesn't have to be a deep meditation, but just stop and breathe and notice what's around you, what you're feeling, and let it go. Be in that moment. Exercise. I recommend a minimum of three minutes daily of exercise. I say surely before lunch or in between appointments or when you first get home, a few minutes of walking up and down the steps, doing a few push-ups, doing a, a leg rises, anything, swim, you name it. But even three minutes, don't change your clothing, just do something vigorous for three minutes each day. You'll be amazed by how rapidly you will tone and how well this will promote your healing. The American Psychiatric Association includes exercise in its list of approaches to depression, and it's recommended a dose of 150 minutes per week. That equals 30 minutes five times a week of walking, running, swimming, weightlifting, anything. There are studies that have shown that exercise will help to reduce depression and anxiety, particularly in people who may have physiologically an inflammatory form of depression or anxiety. But it seems to be helpful for all types of depression. When someone does not feel like it, like I think you were saying to me earlier, someone does not feel like doing 30 minutes or, in my recommendation, three minutes of whatever it is, I say do half, but do it. Do half of it. That's like that for me. When I'm ready to do some exercise and I don't feel like it at all, I feel lousy, I have no motivation, I do half of what I usually do. And it's a terrible disappointment. I'm not able to do the whole thing. But we put too much pressure on ourselves about exercise, having to attain some goal. I say, if you're doing anything, you have achieved that goal. I want to talk to you a little bit, Dr. Wink, about two things. These are definitional questions, and I don't want to spend an hour talking about definitions, but I think people who are listening would be interested to know if they do have one of these two things. Do they have depression? What is depression? And do they have anxiety? What is anxiety? I tend to talk about depression as sadness and anxiety as nervousness and fear. And from there, we go further. Everybody can relate to being nervous and worried. Everybody can relate to times of sadness and sorrow. I talk about soft and hard versions of anxiety and depression. And this is a dichotomy that I reflect upon every time I meet with someone who's sad or nervous. Is this soft anxiety or depression, or is this hard anxiety or depression? And the difference goes like this. Soft is like soft-wired, programmed. So anything that's happening in someone's life currently that's very stressful can result in a lot of fear, anxiety, sadness. And things that happen earlier in people's lives can program them to uh, see the world in scary ways or sad ways to anticipate that things won't go well in some way. This is programming, and that's software, soft, wired, or programmed anxiety or depression. That can often be helped by layer one and layer two. If layer one's not enough with attitudes and behavior change and compassionate love in someone's life, and layer two, various kinds of therapy, ordinarily can help that. So if someone has been programmed to see the world as a scary or sad place, uh, they can often be uh, helped by viewing things differently with therapy or by participating in other kinds of therapies, including spiritual approaches. And that will ordinarily resolve a soft anxiety or depression problem. If someone is suffering so severely that they cannot participate in mindfulness activities, exercise, a healthy diet, and stress management, and if they're so distracted by worry, dread, that they can't focus enough or concentrate enough in therapy or even get themselves to some form of therapy, yeah. then medicine might be helpful to reduce that distress enough for them to 
participate in these things. Are too many people using medicine now? I think so. In 2013, which is the last year this was that I could find, that the data were uh, very accurately broken down into categories, 439 million prescriptions were written for the top 25 psychiatric medications. 80% of those, this is in the United States alone, 80% of those prescriptions are written by non-psychiatric prescribers non-psychiatrists, non-psychiatric nurse practitioners. So a general practitioner, for example, would write. Correct. Yeah, other specialties would write the bulk of the prescriptions. And they often don't have a lot of time to make their decision about that. So many prescriptions, in fact, for antidepressants are written throughout the world that this month's Atlantic magazine has an article about antidepressant pollution in the water. There's a platypus in a stream in Melbourne that ingests greater than one-half the recommended daily dose of antidepressants each day. This may be a very happy platypus, but the effect of antidepressants being excreted into water supplies is quite remarkable, the effects that it's having on other creatures. And the effects that it's having on humans, of course, is more direct because they're the ones taking them. Okay, I want to stop you there for a second and say, you're a psychiatrist. I've always had the theory that one thing that physicians benefit from is the ability to prescribe. A psychologist can't do it. A psychiatrist can do it. A medical doctor can do it. And our economic model is that because doctors, MDs, can prescribe, that is their salvation in terms of why people come to them. Am I wrong? That's very correct in terms of medicine in general. Personally, I'm not big on prescribing, so a lot of people come to me for therapy rather than prescriptions. In psychiatry, we have that capacity if we don't work for someone. Being fiercely independent, I prefer to remain in private practice so I can make these decisions myself. But you're right about medicine. And I have to say this. I am not against the use of psychiatric medication. It's very powerful. I've seen it save lives. I've seen it save lifestyles. I've seen it restore the flow of healing enough that people can participate effectively in therapy and wellness activities. I think that medicine, being as powerful as it is, must be used wisely. The concern that I have about prescribing psychiatric medication and the vast number of prescriptions, I think it goes like this. The people who prescribe psychiatric medications, particularly if they're hard-pressed for time, and most prescribers work for a larger organization which has quotas for them. They must see a certain number of people a day in order to meet the quota and retain their paycheck. So they're forced to make decisions in a very short time. So when a person looking very upset steps in the office of a well-intentioned but time-starved prescriber, that person is likely to think, wow, this person looks like they're suffering. I wonder what I could prescribe to help them. If that same person steps into the office of someone who has more time, that person is more likely to say, this person who just walked in my office looks like they're suffering. I wonder what's wrong. They're more likely to start with that than I wonder what might help. But you are a doctor who can talk to somebody for a while. I choose to. You choose to. As you've pointed out, and we know this is happening, many of the medical practices are being bought by larger organizations, hospitals, and other people. And then they are told, and they take the money, all right, but then they're told, okay, you have to see somebody every 15 minutes, and it's easier to put a pill across the table than to talk to them. Correct. This is why layer two therapists are so important. Therapists of all kinds, psychotherapists, counselors, addiction counselors, massage therapists, acupuncturists, spiritual healers, this is the army of healing. These are the people who have time to talk with someone about what they're experiencing and what might be helpful. And in particular, whether medicine is likely to help or hinder the flow of healing. So these are the people who could take some time. And part of my message, 
as I go out in the world and talk about these things, I'll be in Seattle next month talking to a large group of counselors, is coaching them on how they can talk to people about what medication someone may be taking that they're seeing and whether this is actually helping or might be hindering the process of healing. And then the layer two healing assistants, therapists, can then advise their clients on how to discuss this with the prescriber, equip them with a list of questions, because if they don't get right to the questions when they first walk in the office of the prescriber, these questions won't be answered. And they are? Those questions would be, is this a good idea for me to take this right now? These are the side effects that I'm experiencing. This medicine. From this medicine. And these may be the beneficial effects that I'm experiencing from this medicine. Is this the right medicine for me? Should I try a different medicine? Should I try stopping this medicine to see what it's like without it? I knew somebody back in the day, a long time ago, who took a drug called Elevil. I don't even know if they still prescribe it. It still is prescribed. Yeah. And that guy was able to sleep at night in a way he had never slept before. And it took almost everything he had in him to stop taking the drug. So it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Medicine, no matter what it is, is a double-edged sword. It can do things that are helpful, and it can do things that are harmful. In the case of Elevil, at a high dose for depression, it can harm the heart, especially if someone takes an overdose. At low doses, it can cause dry mouth, it can cause lightheadedness, it can cause constipation. And I think you're speaking to habituation. If someone's taking something and it seems to be helping them, such as Elevil for sleep, in the case of your, this person you knew, then stopping that can be very difficult. Then you have to ask the question, well, was it helping? Apparently it was. Was it helping during a period of time the person is having trouble sleeping and now they don't need it? That can be hard to tell. It's necessary to not take it long enough and to practice what we call sleep hygiene, which is how to fall asleep more easily without drugs, going to bed around the same time, certainly waking up at the same time, not eating or exercising shortly before uh, going to bed, uh, not becoming overly engaged in social media and upset about things before going to sleep. Sleep hygiene sometimes is enough. There are, however, conditions in which people just do not sleep well. Could be physiologic, could be hardwired, could be neurological, could be a brain problem rather than a mind problem. Medication might be helpful long-term for that. Let's go to anxiety for a moment. Okay. Now, we're all anxious. There have been papers that have been put out. I've seen them from time to time saying, it's better if you're worried. It helps you perform better. You react to that? I think that my performance is heightened by anxiety being here with you. As gracious and lovely as you are as a host, it's anxiety-provoking. And I find that that primes me. It makes me more alert. I can concentrate better. Uh, so certainly, anxiety can be highly functional. If there's too much anxiety, then it can be so distracting and so painful that people cannot follow their own line of reasoning or pay attention to what someone else might be saying to them. Stress is not all bad. I say the right amount of stress is a moving target between emptiness and overwhelm. There's a healthy amount of stress, and there's an unhealthy amount of stress. The point at which that switches, I call the stress threshold. The stress threshold is the point at which, when you go beyond it, you start getting problems. Back pain, headaches, acid reflux, diarrhea, constipation, migraines, panic attacks, depression, you name it. Whatever your physiologic Achilles heel is, it's going to show up when you go past the stress threshold. And there's some interesting science about the epigenetics of that. That's how stress can switch on certain genes and switch off other genes. It can switch on genes that you don't want to have switched on. So I call the people who do layer two therapy epigenetic engineers. It's epigenetic engineering to help someone stay below their stress threshold so they are not activating genes that cause illnesses. 
So the right amount of anxiety can improve functioning. Too much anxiety can cause an unraveling of concentration and a great deal of distress and suffering. So now we have a president of the United States, not to do this to you, who is Donald Trump, who is causing a great deal of stress to a lot of people. I've read stories about healers, psychiatrists and others who, you know, notice that their caseload goes up because this guy is the president of the United States. People take him very seriously. Could you comment on that? Sure. I have actually recommended to people that they reduce their dose of MSNBC or Fox when they get so tied up emotionally in what's going on politically. There have been times in the history of psychiatry when psychiatrists have been tempted to diagnose political figures. I don't do that. I don't diagnose anyone I have not spent time with and evaluated myself. And if I were to say anything about them, I would do so only with their permission. But I do note the unrest that afflicts people in this country, in this culture, uh, when they get so caught up in what's going on politically that it activates further their anxiety or depression. That's when I say, maybe you want to ease off on that a little bit. On the other hand, and we're talking to Dr. Bickwink, MD, a psychiatrist, there are those people who think that if, in fact, you and much of your profession say we're not allowed to really pass judgment on somebody from a medical point of view at this stage because we haven't seen them as patients, some people will say, well, because others have written books and chapters and books on this and say, well, things are so bad that if we don't do something in terms of our professional responsibility, things could get a lot worse. I consider my professional responsibility as to my patients and now to my readers. And I have a deep, deep love for this planet. I also have a love for this country. My love for the planet supersedes my love for the country, I must say. And my focus on healing as a spiritual process also supersedes that. I think there are many problems with politics at all times. It's not going to go away with any president or anyone we might elect to be president. It will always be the case that there will be problems with politics and stress as a result of it. I keep my focus on helping people heal and, frankly, wishing to help the planet to heal as well. Okay, so not to pursue this too much, but I've certainly said this before, no secret, that we are in a position where we have a president of the United States who, in my opinion, could try to make this into a totalitarian country, much like we saw in the later 20s and 30s in the form of Hitler, that people will say and write books now, why didn't anybody do anything to stop him? And I'm thinking of your answer, which is it's a very individualized profession. I have to help my patient. But on the other hand, you also talk about helping the, the world and climate change, for example. And this guy's a climate denier. <laughs> so maybe you're taking the easy way out. We are all in denial about the damage that we do to the planet. And I could speak further on that. It may be the easy way out, but I find that remaining politically neutral is best for me in how I help people relieve their distress about what's going on. Uh, no matter what their political orientation, people may make assumptions about me and my political orientation, but I tend not to share that professionally. Okay. Let me move on because I want to tell more about the book. We're talking about Mind Easing, the three-layered healing plan for anxiety and depression. Quite impressive. Dr. Bick Wank, MD, a psychiatrist, wrote it, and it is just chock full of really great ideas, many of which in my 77 years I have practiced. And so, you know, I, I have great respect for what you've written. However, I'm interested in the way you approach the book. 
And one of the things you did is to employ somebody named Lisa, who you mention in virtually every couple of pages and what her impressions were. Why did you do that? Lisa and her friends tell a story. They tell a story about how to create a three-layered healing plan. So I fell in love with Lisa. Lisa's wonderful. Lisa is fictional. I love all these characters. Lisa, Jake, Rachel, Ray, Lisa's dog, Ginger. I chose to write a fictional story. I chose to embed a work of fiction in mind easing in order to engage the reader and keep the reader interested in the process and also to help the reader feel how it is to suffer through Lisa's eyes, through Jake's eyes, and also to show the reader how easy it is to put together, to assemble a three-layered healing plan, not a treatment plan, a healing plan. Lisa shows them how to do that. Lisa, as it turns out, ends up, as you might imagine, making use of all three layers of healing, including medicine, including therapy, including uh, wellness activities. And her dog, Ginger, plays a very important role in the compassionate love part of healing. The reason that I made a story, created a storyline also, is I did not want this book to be full of random anecdotes about people. I find that anecdotes about people's experiences are interesting, but I was concerned that it might be too much like someone's actual experience. I want to preserve people's confidentiality, anonymity. Plus, I suppose I've always been a frustrated novelist, wishing to write a novel. And this is at least a bit of a novella embedded in mind easing. And when you're talking about the mind, I wanted to come back to something you were talking about. I believe this is probably in layer two, but maybe I'm wrong, which is the concept of practicing mindfulness. Correct. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about that because everybody says, well, do mindfulness, but it's not an easy thing to do if you don't know it. So perhaps you could tell us a little about it. Well, here's an example of mindfulness. I'm sitting here talking with Alan Chartok, with David Gustina assisting us in their studio at WAMC. And it's an experience I was not expecting to have in my life. And in order to make the most of this experience, I find that if I can just take a breath, breathe slowly, naturally, take in my surroundings, including these two lovely men, and be here in the moment, even for just a second. That helps to ground me. That helps to anchor me. What do you mean in the moment? In the moment means I'm not thinking about what's going to happen next. I'm not thinking about what I've already Uh. done. In the moment means I'm having an experience right now. It's not necessary to meditate in order to be mindful. Being mindful means being in the present noticing what your experience is right now. And when people do a mindfulness, I have something I call a 60-second mindfulness check-in, when someone finds that they're just racing around, getting all in a bit of a panic about what they're doing and what they're going to do next, and they don't have enough time, I say, stop, breathe, notice what's going on around you, and notice how you're feeling. Don't judge how you're feeling. Notice how you're feeling. Put a word to it. Are you feeling sad, scared, anxious, happy, loving? Whatever it may be, put a word to it. Take another breath and re-enter your busy life gently. That's a 60-second mindfulness check-in. But mindfulness can be walking somewhere, noticing that you're walking, what it feels like when your feet touch the earth, what you're smelling, what you're seeing, what you're hearing. If you're doing that in nature, you're doing something a shaman would say is shamanic healing 101, and that is spending time with nature. In Japanese, uh, they say shinrin roku, forest bathing. 
the shaman I've known, have said, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you're in nature. When healing synchronizes with nature, that's basic shamanic healing. You could be doing that by walking in the woods or walking on the beach, spending some time in the park, or as far as I'm concerned, anywhere you're in the world. Doctor, we have about seven minutes ago, but I wanted to ask you something. Freud talked a little bit about the fear of death. How much does fearing death interfere with the way we live our lives? In most cases, fear of death is subliminal. I followed, there was a man named Ernest Becker who wrote The Denial of Death. He spent some time in Syracuse. I studied in Syracuse after Ernest Becker left, but Thomas Saws was still there who wrote The Myth of Mental Illness. We used to swim together and take saunas. Really? But you didn't end up agreeing with him, did you? He's I one of the great devils of psychiatry. Yes. Thomas Saws was truly an anti-psychiatrist. Yes. He said there is no such thing as mental illness. It's only problems with living. So when we would sit in the sauna after our swim and he would debate with me about psychiatry, I said to him, Dr. Saas, we clearly disagree. Could we just talk about our families? He said, all right then. So hmm. that's what we did. We chose to disagree. Well, it was his meal ticket. He did very well. <laughs> when I was spending time in Peru, I met a man from Australia who'd attended a lecture given by Dr. Saz at the Sydney Opera House, attended by 2,000 people. That's exactly right. Okay, so when we look at the way in which society is trending mm -hmm. now, according to Bickwank, the psychiatrist, well-respected man, are we moving off the cliff or are we moving to more solid ground? This would bring me back to concern about the planet and survival. So I'm very concerned about that, that we may be indeed moving toward the cliff that way. In terms of human interaction and the effect of human interaction on the psyche, it's always been bad. And it will continue to be bad. There will always be stress. Part of the basic urges of humans gives rise to great distress. There will always be a job for me if I choose to continue. Part of growing older, for me, has been the idea that if you do well in what your chosen profession is, you will have a lot of stress. There'll always be somebody who will come along and take great offense to what you've said on the radio or to who you are, their perception of you, and so maybe you're better off not doing what's real important work to you. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. And you are clearly the poster child for aging well. Very fit, mentally and physically, engaged in very interesting work. You apparently, obviously, to me, have a clear mission for yourself. So what you do with your work, with your profession, fulfilling and meaningful. And one of the problems I see in society about aging and work is that as we age, our stress threshold comes down. It reduces. It's not as high as it is at 77 as it is at 37. So there's not as much physiologically that we can take on, including emotionally and the rigors of being in the public eye and having criticism of what you say and what you write. So being able to adjust the quantity and quality of the stress that you experience in your life and that anyone experiences in their life is all the more important with aging. And as society moves forward, people will continue working later in life. Well, I agree with that, although even there I hear from an awful lot of people who say you owe it to the younger people to get out. I think you're doing a wonderful service to the younger people, helping them find their way. We've been talking with psychiatrist and author Bick Wang, MD, about his new book, Mind Easing, The Three-Layered Healing Plan for Anxiety and Depression. You can find out more at https colon slash slash Bickwank, W-A-N-C-K-M-D dot com. 
Vic, what a wonderful conversation, and I hope you'll come back and you'll talk to people on our Vox Pop program and let people hear from you directly when they raise their problems. I would love to. Thank you. You've been delightful, as has David, and I appreciate very much being on your show. Listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1 800 323 9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store. Mm-hmm.